Hello and welcome to edition number 1915 of the Whitney Talking News, which we're recording in the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney on Thursday the 9th of June. My name is Byron Russell and I edited this edition. Our readers today are Theresa Hayes, Henry Spielberg, Barbara Barringer and Alan Ravel. Beside me at the recording controls, we have the multiple talents of Gavin Smalley. This week, we have items from the Whitney Gazette and the Oxford Mail. As you might expect, given all the goings-on last week, our first four items today are all about the Jubilee celebrations locally. Our first story is read by Teresa and sums up the long weekend's events. Yes, and the headline is The Queen's Long Reign Over Us. A weekend of jubilee events was barely dampened by the weather as friends and neighbours joined together to celebrate the Queen's 70 years on the throne. Newly elected Whitney Mayor Liz Duncan led the lighting of the jubilee beacon on the Lees as part of a short ceremony with music and speeches. The 2120 Whitney Squadron Royal Air Force Cadets formed a guard of honour to receive the Mayor and Town Crier Jean Postlethwaite Dixon in her flowered tricorn and regal purple costume. The town crier read a proclamation before the park run runners entered the Lees at the end of a 5k flag relay from the start point at West Whitney. Junior park runners and others presented the Whitney town flag to the mayor, who said a few words before lighting the beacon simultaneously with other beacons across the country. Singers from West Oxfordshire Academy of Performing Arts then gave a warm and polished performance and led the singing of the national anthem. Mrs Duncan said all these people and groups gave their time so generously to this event and it was so appreciated. On Saturday, Whitney Beer Festival, organised by Whitney Roundtable, got underway at St Mary's Church. There were 70 beers, cider, wines and Prosecco on offer, as well as soft drinks, plus live music from local bands and Windrush Radio. The organisers were all volunteers from Whitney Roundtable, including many from the Roundtable Veterans 41 Club. Chairman Craig Brown said it was an absolutely amazing turnout. It was a slow start as it rained in the morning, but people defied the weather coming out with their umbrellas. The queues of hundreds went back onto the church green. Friends and neighbours braved the glum weather on Sunday at the big lunch on the Lees. A Whitney Town Council spokesperson said lots of people enjoyed the free games provided by Premier Tennis and the coffee shed. There was music and food and possibly the poshest setup for a picnic we've seen in ages. A double gazebo, a long table with tablecloth and napkins and even a sparkling candelabra. Amazing. Thank you all for such a lovely community activity. In addition to the public events... There were hundreds of street parties with 26 applications for road closures officially registered with West Oxford District Council. A Platinum Jubilee concert featuring Voice Books Choir and Whitney Town Band at the Corn Exchange featured music from the Home Nations and Commonwealth, including some of the Queen's favourite pieces. It was followed by more singing in the Market Square. Henry is here to tell us about that amazing fly-past at the Palace, which involved crews from local airfield Bryce Norton. The title is Air Crews Begin Jubilee Celebrations with Mal Flypast. The Royal Air Force has spoken of its pride in its airmen and women, many from RAF Bryce Norton and RAF Benson, for putting on a spectacular 70 aircraft flypast for the Queen and members of the Royal Family. 
the aircraft began the weekend's Platinum Jubilee celebrations with a fly-past over the Mall and Buckingham Palace on Thursday, while the royal family watched on from the famous palace balcony. The fly-past included Puma and Chinook helicopters from RAF Benson near Wallingford, and Hercules, Atlas and Globemaster C-17 and Voyager aircraft from RAF Bryce Norton near Carterton. Bryce Norton said, The Royal Air Force had the honour to participate in a special tri-service fly-past over Buckingham Palace, celebrating Her Majesty the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Starting at RAF Scampton in Lincolnshire, the aircraft, including the Red Arrows, flew to London and then back over a number of southern counties. The planes could be spotted from Whitney, Wantage, Chilton, Didcot and Ardington, with large numbers of plane spotters gathering at the Britannia Gate of RAF Bryce Norton in the afternoon. Alice Papworth said, Watched from the Mall. It was an incredible sight and made my son's day. And Margaret Gaylor commented, Wonderful. We've got the best forces in the world. Such precision perfect. Later in the day, the aircraft attended the Midlands Air Festival at Ragley Hall in Warwickshire before landing at RAF Fairford. Before the fly passed, more than 1,400 soldiers and 250 horses from the British Army's Household Division took part in the Trooping the Colour. And the photo shows the wonderful fly pass taking place over the Mall with aircraft in the shape of the number 70 for the Queen's Jubilee. And now on to Barbara and an item about a big Blenheim foodie celebration. Thank you. Yes, it's food fit for Queen, laid out at Palace. Visitors streamed through the Blenheim Palace gates for a food festival fit for a Queen. The Blenheim Palace Food Festival returned for its eighth year with the Platinum Jubilee theme. The year's headliner was Raymond Blanc, chef patron of Le Manoir au Cat Saison um, in Great Milton. The Festival Kitchen also hosted a masterclass on how to make pasta, hosted by Italian cuisine legend and the man who taught Jamie Oliver to cook, Gennaro Contaldo. There was a demonstration on how to get baking from 2018 Great British Bake Off contestant Karen Wright, who describes herself as a self-taught baker, a stalker of French patissiere windows. After the party was over, the Palace posted on Facebook, thank you to everyone who came and celebrated Her Majesty the Queen's Platinum Jubilee with us at Britain's Greatest Palace. Visitors learned to concoct a cocktail with food and drink writer and author of Home Bar, Andy Clark. They also created healthy treats with Ava Humphreys from Whole Food Warrior, a nutritional therapist and champion of sustainable food. Meanwhile, the Jubilee Garden offered traditional cream teas as visitors were serenaded by vintage vocal trio, the Lollipops Brass Quartet, acoustic jazz. In the Jubilee picnic area, families staged their own celebrations on rows of tables decorated with bunting, while stallholders showcased their wares. Alongside the food festival, other activities for families, including Twistina, the amazing balloon modelling lady, and TV gastronaut Stefan Gates, with his mind-blowing food and science show. Village Green-style attraction Gifford Circus 
was resident in the palace parklands. Visitors were also able to follow a jubilee trail and see the dress worn by Lady Rosemary Spencer Churchill when she was one of the Queen's Maids of Honour at her 1953 coronation. There was also a surprise fly-past by aircraft from RAF Benson with three Puma helicopters overhead as they returned from the display to crowds in the Mall and the Royal Family at Buckingham Palace. Heather Carter, the operations director, said it has been an absolute treat to see everyone coming together to have such a great time enjoying great food and drink and there's also some nice photographs of the Greek grilling in action and also other people doing interesting foodie things. And finally in the section, a very short piece from Alan about the lighting of the local beacon. Yes, this one's headline, Duke Lights Palace Beacon. And it reads, Blenheim Palace joined other locations across the UK to light a beacon marking the Queen's Jubilee at the start of the the, uh, long Jubilee bank holiday weekend. The beacon was lit by the Duke of Marlborough and his family after Blenheim Park gates opened for people living near the estate to join the beacon lighting, making their way on foot to the monument across the Grand Bridge. At 9.45pm, the lighting of the beacon was accompanied by the Song for the Commonwealth, sung by the RAF Benson Military Wives Choir. And the next item is about... Cogs Manor Farm, and the headline is Cogs Volunteers Receive MBE for Helping Heritage. Volunteers at a farm museum have been awarded the equivalent of an MBE for their work at the heritage site. The volunteers at Cogs Manor Farm in Whitney receive the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service, which is the highest award a local voluntary group can receive in the UK. Cogs Manor Farm is a one-time working farm which is now a heritage centre, giving visitors an insight into farm life and how the food they eat is cultivated. It provides workshops for school children and adults about food production, local history, horticulture and rural arts and crafts. It also serves as a recreational facility where families can meet and feed the animals and famously as a film, filming location, most recently as a backdrop in the new Downton Abbey film. In 1974, Oxfordshire County Council bought Cogs Manor Farm and converted the house and farmstead into a living museum, depicting rural life in Oxfordshire during the Victorian era. At the end of the summer season in 2009, the council withdrew withdrew funding (coughs) and the museum closed, raising fears that the historic farmstead would be lost to development. But in 2011, a charitable trust was set up with a board of volunteer trustees and supported by around 100 local volunteers. Within just two weeks, the heritage site was reopened to the public. Chair of Trustees Paul Evans said, Over the following years, volunteers have worked alongside a small staff team and have been instrumental in building a first-class visitor experience that welcomes around 50,000 visitors per year. The volunteers work in a variety of roles, from visitor services, gardens, maintenance, animal care and specialist tours to crafts and conservation. Cox Heritage Trust is one of 244 local charities, social enterprises and voluntary groups to receive the prestigious award this year. It is one of only two charities in Oxfordshire to receive it. The Queen's Award for Voluntary Service was created in 2002 
to celebrate the Queen's Golden Jubilee. Recipients are announced each year on June 2nd, the anniversary of the Queen's coronation. Representatives of COGS Heritage Trust will receive a crystal award with a QAVS insignia from Me- sorry from Mildry Glasgow B8. I'm sorry, I say I'll start that sentence again. Representatives of COGS Heritage Trust will receive a crystal award with a QAVS insignia from Marjorie Glasgow BEM, Lord Lieutenant of Oxfordshire, later this summer. Director of COGS, Melanie Marsh, said, I am delighted and proud that our volunteers at COGS Heritage Trust have been recognised with such a prestigious award. For COGS to have been nominated and then to have been successful in his receiving this award is a powerful testimony to the hard work and commitment that our volunteers have demonstrated since day one in 2011. And there's a really lovely photo of three young, happy volunteers, I assume they're happy, moving, I think, hay for the animals. This is a story about the Whitney Music Festival taking place this coming weekend, which has a new sponsor this year. Titled, Three Cheers for Brewery as it Comes to Aid Festival. Music festival organisers have raised a toast to a West Oxfordshire brewery for assuring its future by stepping in as a replacement sponsor. Whitney Music Festival this weekend was left facing an uncertain future after the Witchwood Brewery, its major sponsor, withdrew after being taken over by Carlsberg. Now, family-owned Hook Norton Brewery has come to the festival's rescue. Organisers, who revealed they had already put in their own money to keep the event afloat, were left facing a major headache when Witchwood revealed it could no longer help. This weekend's festival takes place on the Lees on Friday and Saturday, with local act The Inflatables headlining the first night with support from cover bands and tribute acts. Saturday will be headlined by Forest of Dean indie pop band EMF, who topped the charts in the 1990s with their anthemic hit, Unbelievable. Support will come from Whitney Groups. The chairman of the festival's organising committee, Eric Marshall, said, We are super excited to announce a partnership with Hook Norton Brewery. It's great to work with a local family firm again who are community-focused. They have loved what we do and were excited to be part of the festival. They have bent over backwards to help us in a very short period of time. So a big thank you to Ray, Mark and the team at Hook Norton because it's been a tough ask at such short notice to pull this together. The brewery has provided beer for music festivals and other events and decided to get involved after being approached following the Witchwood withdrawal. Hookie's marketing manager, Mark Graham, said it liked to sponsor local events and has a pub, the Eagle Tavern, in Whitney. He said there will be Hookie beer on the bar, Hookie original cider and wines, spirits, soft drinks. We will be offering the technical support so that people can have pub quality beer in the middle of a field. Last month, festival organisers asked the public to book tickets in advance to cover upfront costs and keep the festival alive. Mr Marshall said, We have a lot of costs up front and we're struggling to pay suppliers their advance fees, so we need the help of the public. Since then, ticket sales have been so strong that the event is likely to be sold out. Mr Marshall said, Being in lockdown, it has been easy to feel isolated and not part of anything, but with the response we have had, it's clear the community of Whitney want to come together to celebrate the amazing local talent we have. 
Festival entry is £5 on Friday and £10 on Saturday. Under 14s get in free. School set to add 100 places as area grows. A primary school is set to expand by more than 100 places to accommodate the number of families moving into new houses in the area. The delegated decision to increase capacity at Woodstock Primary School was made by Oxfordshire County Council's deputy leader, Liz Brickhouse. Ms Brickhouse, who is also the council's cabinet member for children, education and young people's services, was recommended to approve the expansion to two forms of entry with effect from September 2023. This will see the school increase in capacity from 315 to 420 places. Approval is, however, subject to the granting of planning permission. At the meeting, the Council's Pupil Place Planning Manager, Barbara Chilman, explained planning permission for the expansion has not yet been granted. The application is still under consideration and the main reason why it's not yet been granted is that further consideration is being given to the highways issues. A little bit more analysis is still going to, on to how that can be best addressed. We do have a date for the expansion of September 2023. Clearly, that in itself is dependent on how quickly planning permission gets granted. It may be that the timescale slips to 2024. We're hoping we'll still make 2023, but it's all cutting it a little bit fine in terms of planning permission. We've been in discussions with the highways team for years, but as we're well aware, traffic is not an easy issue in Woodstock, particularly on the roads by the schools. By going to two forms of entry, there would be a requirement to increase the school's admission number in September 23 from 45 to 60 on a permanent basis. A council report states this expansion is needed to meet the growing pupil population expected to result from housing development already underway in Woodstock, as well as that included in the adopted West Oxfordshire Local Plan. Woodstock Church of England Primary School is full in most year groups and is regularly oversubscribed. For the 2022 intake year, the school has received 50 first preference applications for the 45 available reception places. Pupil numbers at the school are forecast to rise as a result of local housing developments. The West Oxfordshire Local Plan identifies Woodstock as an area for strategic housing growth, with 300 homes currently being built to the east of Woodstock. The proposed expansion of the school would mean that each year group that starts at the school from September 2023 onward would consist of up to 60 places. New parking charges given council's approval. Divisive plans to introduce pay-and-display parking bays in Woodstock have been given the green light. In March, Oxfordshire County Council's Cabinet approved giving notice to West Oxfordshire District Council to change the management of highway parking enforcement in West Oxfordshire. 
Under the proposals, the district continues to manage and enforce its off-street car parks, while the county council manages on-street infringements, such as those involving yellow lines and bus lanes. At that meeting, Andy Graham, a county councillor for Woodstock, said the lack of effective enforcement had caused chaos in the town for more than 15 years. Now a decision has been made to approve pay and display bays and permit parking areas in the town centre, despite opponents to the plans fearing parking charges could be rolled out across West Oxfordshire, including in Whitney. At a county council meeting, the local authority's new cabinet member for highways management, Andrew Gant, was tasked with the delegated decision. He said, It is clear from everyone that the current system doesn't work and isn't enforced. There was some correspondence that said don't do this and drop the scheme. Well, that does not address the underlying problem. Liam Walker, a councillor for Hanborough and Minster Lovell, has been vocal in his disapproval of the proposals and said at the meeting, There were a lot of private meetings, meetings that were not minuted before town council meetings. There were meetings that the public was not invited to. We had a consultation process that ran during the period of Perda before an election, which brings into question whether that should have happened, and also the recent Cabinet decision of taking back enforcement, which included £300,000 of income from Woodstock. You could ask the question whether the decision was predetermined because the County Council's Cabinet has signed off on that income. Mr Graham responded, The consultation by the County Council has been second to none in the sense that it was not one question whether you wanted, whether you wanted free parking or not. It asked for comments on the scheme that had been professionally designed to bear in mind the various interested bodies. Mr Gant approved the three-hour pay-and-display bays with the first hour free and exemptions for permit holders, as well as ultra-short bays, which will be free for half an hour. A further assessment by council officers is to be undertaken to consider introducing permits for visitors to hotels and guest houses in Woodstock. This will require further public consultation. And now a sporting item. It's headlined, Women's Tour to Race Along County Roads. The final lap of a prestigious cycling race is to take place in Oxfordshire this weekend. More than 100 riders in the women's tour will start the final and sixth stage of the race in Chipping Norton's High Street at 11am on Saturday before a 90-mile route finishes at St Giles in Oxford at about 3pm. Stage 6 will take in Milcombe, southwest of Banbury, before travelling through West Oxfordshire then south and finally to the finish line in Oxford. Oxford County Council leader Liz Lefman said, The women's tour is a fantastic way to showcase our wonderful county to the world. I'm confident this event will support and raise awareness of cycling and its benefits, as well as bring an economic boost to our communities. Andy Graham, leader of West Oxfordshire District Council, added, It's fantastic to have such a prestigious race taking place in our district, and it's a great honour for Chipping Norton to be hosting the start of the race. We hope the women's tour will leave a positive legacy with more people getting into cycling 
and making the most of our beautiful countryside in West Oxfordshire. And now an item about the organisation of the NHS in the county. Counties NHS trusts to team up for improved patient care. Patients across Oxfordshire are set to benefit from new closer working measures adopted by NHS health providers in Oxfordshire. Oxford Health NHS Foundation Trust, OHFT, and Oxford University Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust, OUHFT, have signed up to work more closely together to improve patient care. Those seeking medical attention or who are long-term patients at either trust will now receive an improved level of care. Older patients are already seeing the benefits, with staff working together to care for more people in their own homes rather than in hospital, where possible, which is known to help patients recover more quickly. OHFT's Dr Nick Broughton and OUHFT's Dr Bruno Holthoff signed a Memorandum of Understanding on Friday, May 27th, to formalise an agreement which will also enable more joined-up care. As well as making patients feel that they are being cared for by one NHS team and providing better value for money. Dr Broughton said, This helps strengthen the closer working relationship between our two organisations. It is good news for our patients and our staff. It means we'll be working as one team, breaking down organisational barriers in order to provide seamless care. Dr Holthoff added, One of the next steps for the collaboration will be the further development of virtual wards, allowing patients to get the care they need at home safely and conveniently without going into hospital at all. I've got two items here. The first one, bike thieves snapped by householders' doorbell. Bike thieves have been caught on camera. Doorbell footage posted on Whitney, spotted Facebook, page by householder Jasmine Ashman, captures the moment thieves made off with her bike, strapped to the roof of a car. The bicycle was stolen by four men. Miss Ashman said, CCTV of my bike being taken on the top of the car by four males. Thames Valley Police has now appealed for witnesses. A spokesman said the raid was in Mossy Walk, Whitney, at 12.15am on Saturday, May the 21st. It was said a group of four or five people entered a garage at the property and took a bicycle before driving off in a black or dark-coloured Audi. Anyone with any, no, any news at all about this can call 101, and there's a very blurry picture that's doesn't really show anything. And then the, the second um, item is a teen, bun- uh, sorry, teen punched in face and has phone stolen at a bus stop. And there is actually a picture of this bus stop and it looks like anybody can see what anybody was doing in it. Anyway, the article reads, a teenager was punched in the face and thrown to the floor at a bus stop before having his mobile phone stolen. At about 7pm on Friday, the teenage boy was waiting for a friend at a bus stop in Burford Road, Carterton, opposite Rock Road. He had his phone out at the time and was grabbed by a man who punched the teenager in the face. The victim grappled with the man, who then threw the teenager to the floor. The man grabbed the teenager's mobile and got into a car where a number of other men were. 
The offender is described as a white man, mid-40s in age, of skinny build, about 5 foot 10, and with gold and silver teeth. The victim did not require hospital treatment, but suffered some bruising, Thames Valley Police reported. Investigating officer PC Adam Taylor, based at Whitney Police Station, said, We're appealing for the public's help in investigating this incident. We would ask anyone who may have witnessed this assault to please come forward. Additionally, we are aware that cars may have been passing and that homes in the area may have CCTV. As such, we would ask anyone with dash cameras or CCTV cameras to please check their footage and contact us if it shows anything that could assist our investigation. I also have two short items. Uh, The first one's headlined, Electric Car Figures Surge. And it reads, more than 1,500 new electric cars were registered in Oxfordshire in 2021, boosting the number of electric cars in the county. The government is aiming to entirely phase out new petrol and diesel-powered cars, car sales, by 2030, with battery electric vehicles planned to account for all new car sales by 2035. The Auto Trader uh, Media Group said the recent surge was positive, but that electric cars were still too expensive for many people to make the switch from petrol and diesel powered vehicles. Department for Transport figures show there were 5,338 battery electric vehicles in Oxfordshire at the end of last year, up from 3,784 at the end of 2020, and that's a 41% rise. It meant 1,554 electric vehicles were newly registered last year, though this was fewer than the 1,918 registered the year before. Second item is headlined, Batteries Spark Blaze. Firefighters were called to tackle two house blazes caused by, in the first instance, faulty batteries and the second, a carelessly discarded cigarette. Crews went through smoke in a kitchen in Hayley to extinguish the source of the blaze, faulty batteries which were being charged. Firefighters were also called to a rear garden fire at a property in Smith's estate in Whitney, The fire service said that fire had been ignited by a carelessly discarded cigarette. A spokesperson for Oxfordshire Fire and Rescue said the occupiers in this incident were alerted by the dog barking and smoke detectors actuating in the home. That's the end of the first part of this edition and we move on to Editor's Choice. As it's the first week of June... I thought we'd remember the Allied landings, popularly known as D-Day, 66 years ago this week. On Tuesday the 6th of June 1944, the Allies launched the largest invasion ever assembled. Within five days, a total of 326,000 troops, 54,000 vehicles and 104,000 tonnes of supplies had been landed on the French beaches. They weren't just British and American soldiers. Troops from Australia... Belgium, Czechoslovakia, Denmark, France, Greece, the Netherlands, New Zealand, 
Norway and Poland were involved. For example, the Belgian city of Ypres, just an hour from the coast, was liberated by the Poles. The code name for the whole invasion was Operation Overlord. So why D-Day? When a military operation is being planned, its actual date and time is not always known. The term D-Day was used to mean the date on which operations would begin, whatever date that was decided to be. The day before D-Day was known as D-1, while the day after D-Day was D-1, and so on. This meant that if the date changed, all other dates in the plan did not have to be corrected. The term D-Day is still used for military operations. As anticipated, the invasion landings came at a very heavy cost in human life. The number of people killed on the day is not known exactly, but research by the US National D-Day Memorial Foundation gives a figure of 4,414 Allied personnel killed on D-Day. These include 2,501 from the USA, 1,449 British dead, 391 Canadians, and 73 from other Allied countries. But the toll could have been far, far worse. The German army was well-equipped and had strong defences. In 1942, Hitler was well aware that the Allies were probably considering an invasion, and Germany began construction on the Atlantic Wall, a 2,400-mile-long network of bunkers, pillboxes, mines and landing obstacles up and down the French coast. A landing by sea should have been an utter catastrophe. What changed the game plan was Operation Bodyguard, a brilliant plan of mass deception carried out by the British and the Americans. Vital to Operation Bodyguard's success were more than a dozen German spies in Britain who had been discovered, arrested and turned into double agents by British intelligence officers. The Allies spoon-fed fake information to these Nazi double agents to pass along to Berlin. For example, a pair of double agents with the unlikely code names of Mutt and Jeff relayed detailed reports about the British Fourth Army that was grouping up in Scotland with plans to join with the Soviet Union and invade through Norway. But both the so-called Fourth Army and the plan was totally made up. To further the illusion, the Allies made up radio chatter about cold weather issues, such as ski bindings and the operation of tank engines in sub-zero temperatures. This trick worked. Hitler sent a fighting division off to Scandinavia, just weeks before D-Day. The most logical place in Europe for the D-Day invasion was around Calais, 150 miles northeast of Normandy. The Allies had decided against the region as a landing spot because it was the most heavily fortified section of the Atlantic Wall, but they wanted to trick the Nazis into thinking they were taking this shortest route across the Channel. To give the appearance of a massive troop build-up in southeast England, the Allies created another fake fighting force, the 1st US Army Group. The Allies broadcast endless hours of fictitious radio transmissions about troop and supply movements. They went so far as to plant wedding notices for fake soldiers in the local newspapers. They deceived Nazi reconnaissance planes by building dummy wooden aircraft and an armada of pretend landing craft, which were just painted canvases pulled over steel frames around the mouth of the Thames. They even made inflatable rubber Sherman tanks, giving a new meaning to the words blowing up a tank. 
The rubber tanks were moved to different locations at night, and the British used rollers to simulate tank tracks. Since Allied cold breakers at Bletchley Park had been successful in deciphering Germans, Germany's secret communications, they knew that the Nazis had fallen for the deception. In the weeks leading up to the invasion, the Allies stepped up their air attacks around Calais, Calais to throw the Nazis off the scent. They even employed Lieutenant M.E. Clifton James, an Australian actor who bore a striking resemblance to General Montgomery, to impersonate the British commander. After Clifton James spent time with Montgomery to study his mannerisms, he donned one of the general's uniforms and at the end of May flew to Algiers, where German intelligence was sure to spot him and so believe that no attack across the English Channel could be imminent with the general so far away. As the D-Day assault on Normandy began, the deception continued. Allied aircraft flying towards Calais dropped clouds of aluminium strips to give false radar readings that made it look as if a large fleet was approaching. Other aircraft dropped hundreds of dummy paratroopers that were wired with fireworks to sound like rifle fire and grenades when they hit the ground. A handful of British special operations forces also landed among the dummies and operated recorders to broadcast the sounds of soldiers' voices and gunfire. D-Day marked the start of Allied operations, which would ultimately liberate Western Europe, defeat Nazi Germany and end the Second World War, just ten months after the invasion. The success of the invasion was certainly down to the brawn and bravery of the Allied troops, but it owed just as much to the brains behind the string of tricks and deceptions that foxed the Nazis. Now let's go over to our regular quiz and the answers from the last edition on May the 26th. Good luck to our readers at answering these. So here are the questions. Which Oxford Museum is the oldest in the world? It is indeed the Ashmolean. In which month of the year is the glorious 12th, the start of the grouse shooting season? August. 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 Mm, Yes. Okay, no problem there. Um, In which American city was John F. Kennedy shot? Dallas. Dallas. What would you be frightened of if you suffered from gametophobia? The answer is marriage. Really? Yeah. So if you're a gametophobe, you don't want to um, get committed. No. And finally, what is the oldest man-made structure on Earth which is visible from space? The Wall of China. It is indeed the Great Wall of China. And now for this week's quiz. We're right in the middle of spring, so the questions this week all have a June theme. Number one. Which famous actress, who was once married to baseball legend Joe DiMaggio, was born on June the 3rd? Number two. On June the 4th, 1944, which famous and ancient European city was liberated by the US 5th Army? Number three, D-Day, as we now know, took place on June the 6th. But can you name the five beaches on which the Allies landed? Number four, on June the 6th also, the Russians sent the very first woman into space. What was her name? And finally, number five, on June the 25th, 1876, the US cavalry decisively lost the Battle of the Little Bighorn against the Sioux tribe. What was the name of the American commander? 
And now, before we go on to the second part of this edition, we are saddened to announce the following deaths, which were listed in the Whitney Gazette this week. On the 21st of May, Graham Older. On the 28th of May, Deirdre Taylor. On the 29th of May, Roger Kenneth Turner. On the 30th of May, Francis Graham Widows. On the 13th of April, Stephen Mark Wilkinson. And also in May, on a date unspecified, Mr David Angus. Our condolences to their friends and their families. So, let's move on to the second part of this edition. And we start with an apparent attempt by the Metropolitan Police to poach officers from the Thames Valley Force. The headline reads, Met's £5,000 golden handshake as outrageous. Thames Valley's police and, commissioner, police and crime commissioner branded as outrageous efforts by the Metropolitan Police to poach home county's officers with the promise of a £5,000 golden handshake. Matthew Barber joined his counterparts in Surrey, Bedfordshire, Sussex and Kent in criticising the Met's recruiting policy. The Commissioner tweeted on Tuesday, Targeting officers from other forces risks community safety in these areas, not to mention the question of whether it's even legal. Instead of fighting over the same turf, we should be working together to attract the best new people into policing. In February, the Met Police said it was temporarily lifting the requirement for new recruits to live in London as it tried to hire 1,800 new officers by March next year. Corporate Services Chief Robin Wilkinson reportedly told the London Assembly in March that the number of applications it was receiving was too low to meet the growth the force needed. The Met is now offering a £5,000 golden handshake to officers interested in transferring to London from other forces. Police and crime commissioners in the area surrounding London expressed their concerns online yesterday. Kent's Matthew Scott accused the Met of selfishly poaching his experienced officers to meet its targets, and Sussex, Sussex's Katie Bourne said the force just doesn't care about the bigger picture. Now we have a story from Oxford Crown Court this week, titled Delayed Fate for Dealer Whose House Was Run by Gang. Sentencing of a woman whose house was taken over by drug dealers was delayed after her lawyer failed to turn up at court. Kirsty Buchan, 47, attended Oxford Crown Court on Monday, expecting to learn her fate, having pleaded guilty at an earlier hearing to possession with intent to supply Class A drugs. But Judge Michael Gledhill QC was forced to adjourn her case until Friday after a breakdown in communications meant her barrister was absent. He is understood to have thought the matter was taken out of the list. It's an unusual course I'm taking because it's not right you don't have representation here today, he told the defendant. Earlier, Prosecutor Philip Misner said the charges followed a raid on Buchan's home in Whitney in September 2020. The Crown Prosecution Service accepted she had been cuckooed by out-of-town drug dealers who had taken over her flat as a base from which to sell their product. Mr Misner told Judge Gledhill, It's clear she's an addict whose addiction has been exploited, so she would comply with the requests of others. At a hearing last month, 
the prosecution formally dropped charges against a young London woman who they accepted had been trafficked to Buckins' Whitney home and was being made to sell heroin and crack cocaine. Buchan of Newbridge Street, Whitney, will be sentenced on June the 10th. Hollywood star Jeremy Irons to cut cake for charity's 40th. Film star Jeremy Irons will lead a 40th birthday celebration at Oxford University's Merton College for loneliness charity The Archway Foundation. On Saturday, June the 18th, the celebrated actor and long-time patron of Archway, Jeremy Irons, will join local dignitaries, including the Archdeacon, Lord Lieutenant and the Mayors of Oxford and Abingdon, as well as staff, volunteers, patrons, trustees and beneficiaries of Archway, past and present. They will take part in a private Thanksgiving service and cake-cutting ceremony in the College Chapel. Since 1982, Archway has been working in Oxford, Abingdon and surrounding areas to alleviate the distress caused by loneliness and social isolation through supported social groups, meeting up with people face-to-face and in response to the pandemic, a telephone support service. Archway Chief Executive Sheila Furlong was recently awarded an MBE for services to mental health. She said, During the past 40 years, the Archway Foundation has brought relief from the pain of loneliness to thousands of Oxfordshire residents. This has only been made possible through the dedication of a small staff group, supportive proactive trustees, committed compassionate volunteers, the trust and involvement of those who contact us for help and support from the local community. As we look back with gratitude for all that has been achieved, we renew our commitment to reducing loneliness by offering a compassionate listening ear, acceptance, a sense of belonging and opportunities for making meaningful connection with others to help build community for the next 40 years and beyond. Jeremy Irons, oh sorry, Jeremy Irons has lived in Watlington for many years. In 2020, he treated fans to a storytelling session while he was perched in a tree near his home. The fun was part of the town's postponed Oxfordshire Art Week celebration and saw the town transformed into an open-air gallery for the day. The outdoor hidden art trail celebrated the community's support during the pandemic. In England, more than 25 million people, 45% of all adults, occasionally, sometimes or often feel lonely. Loneliness affects people of all ages, the highest groups being the under-25s and over-65s. In the UK, the number of over-50s suffering from loneliness is set to reach 2 million by 2025 or 2026, an increase of 49% in 10 years. And lack of social connections has been linked to cardiovascular health risks and increased death rates, blood pressure, depression and risk of dementia. For more information about the Archway Foundation, visit the website archwayfoundation.org.uk.
And my story is headlined, Zara and Ian off on 500-mile journey. And the story reads, Zara Dyer and her husband Ian Brown are on the Thames path and will be passing through Oxford on their 500-mile cross-country charity challenge on Saturday. In 2016, Zara was only 29 and working in the Caribbean when she suffered a freak seizure at the wheel of her car, causing it to crash. She suffered devastating injuries and had to be taught how to swallow, talk and walk again. Zara and her full-time carer and partner Ian undertook a successful charity walk in 2019, the Jogel Challenge. And Jogel means John O'Groats to Land's End, so north to south uh, across the country or up and down the country. And on May the 4th, they started walking west to east across the country from St David's in Pembrokeshire in Wales to Ness Point in Lowestoft in Suffolk. And they are due to arrive on July the 2nd after completing 500 miles. They are hoping to raise one million pennies for their registered charity, which is called Three Million Steps, an organisation that supports sufferers of brain injuries and their carers. Funds will be used for further treatment and equipment that is not immediately supplied by the National Health Service. And there are a couple of other ways to get more involved in this story. To follow Zara's recovery, visit Three Million Steps, and that's the, uh, the numeral three, so threemillionsteps.org, or her Facebook page, which is also 3 Million Steps with the numeral 3. And a second way to be involved is to find out more about their journey. You can contact Zara and Ian on the, the email address info at 3 Million Steps, again <clears throat> with the numeral 3, dot org. So that's info at 3 Million Steps dot org. And just to say, there's a photograph with this story which shows <clears throat> Zara and Ian on their journey, this time somewhere on the coast of Britain, uh, on their 500-mile challenge, um, I assume from Pembrokeshire, uh, and the caption to the picture says that they will be walking through Oxfordshire this weekend. And another story about fundraising, and this one is in Farringdon, and the headline is Fundraiser at the Folly. Fundraiser Dave Thompson is in training to circuit the famed landmark of Farringdon Folly multiple times on Sunday, June the 19th, to raise £1,000 for the RNLI. The Farringdon branch of supporters for the Lifeboat Charity is back on its feet after the pandemic, but says it needs younger members. Whitney resident Dave, 77, said, The average age of our committee at RNLI Farringdon is 76, so we also, need, we also hope to attract new volunteers. The 100-foot-high fo- Folly Tower is a noted Oxfordshire landmark standing on top of a hill. Walking a circuit, which is about 400 metres, offers views over five neighbouring counties. The tower itself is also open on the day, from 11am till 5pm. To donate to Dave Thompson's walk, go to justgiving.com forward slash crowdfunding forward slash Dave hyphen Thompson hyphen 
R-N-L-I. And the Thompson is spelt T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. And we have yet another story about charity fundraising titled Cosmo Cash for Hospitals. Cosmo Restaurant in Oxford has announced £1 from every child's meal sold over the next month will be donated to Oxford Hospital's charity. The global all-you-can-eat buffet chain is donating funds from the sale of all children's meals purchased on weekdays from June the 6th to July the 31st. Funds raised by the restaurant will go directly to Oxford Children's Hospital. Oxford Hospitals Charity supports hospitals across the city, which include the John Radcliffe, Churchill Hospital and Oxford Children's Hospital. The money it raises goes towards enhancing hospital environments, purchasing specialist equipment and contributing to research, staff development and training. Before reopening in April, Cosmo invited 400 key workers for an exclusive dining experience for free as a thank you for their services. And now time for the notice board. First, three birthdays. On June the 6th, Mrs Dewar of Whitney and Miss Jones of Carterton. And on June the 8th, Mrs Oliver of Farringdon. Many congratulations from all of us to all three of you. Next, two music events which may be of interest. The Whitney Music Festival runs from the 10th to the 11th of June at 5pm each day at the Lees Recreation Ground. Tickets vary... Some are free, others up to £10. There's more music on Sunday with a fundraising concert for Ukraine. The event is free and takes place at St Edward's School in Woodstock. Telephone 01865 319 325 for details. Finally, the Whitney Torch Fellowship provides advice, support, opportunities for fellowship and library services free of charge. It meets on the first Saturday of every month at 2pm in the Welcome Church, High Street, Whitney. New members are very welcome. The contact number is 01993 891 639. As well as listening to the USB stick you receive from us each week, there are several other ways for you to listen to all our editions, including the magazines. Whitney Talking News is available via the website https backslash backslash wtn.org.uk and through our podcasts. All the internet services are accessible through Alexa. You can listen to the Whitney Talking News podcast through any Amazon Alexa-enabled device. If you have Alexa and you haven't used it to listen to us in the past, before you listen for the first time, you have to enable the AnyPod podcast reader. Just say to Alexa, Alexa, enable any pod skill. Then to listen, simply say, Alexa, ask any pod to play Whitney Talking News. That's really all you need, but while you are listening, there are a number of useful phrases that you can use, and full details can be seen on our website at wtn.org.uk. Just follow the link, listen online. So, that's it for this week. 
Please remove the memory stick from the playback unit and close the metal shield. Remember to reverse the plastic address label on the yellow pouch before posting it back to us. Please do so as soon as you possibly can, as sometimes we run out of labels and pouches, and then of course we can no longer continue our service to you. And remember, if you wish to get in touch with us, just leave a slip of paper in your pouch and we'll telephone you. It only remains for me to thank the Whitney Gazette and Oxford Mail for the content that we've used tonight. Thanks also to our technical expert, Gavin Smalley, who has worked wonders on the recording deck and will be copying all the memory sticks later on this evening. A big thank you to our volunteers, Tessa Caddy and Doreen Turner, who have been checking the pouches and memory sticks you have returned and keeping records in our register. And finally, a very big thank you to all our readers tonight, Teresa Hayes, Henry, Henry Spielberg, Barbara Barringer and Alan Revelle. Keep listening at the end of our programme for an info sound item which gives highlights of the week's best radio listening and audio-described TV. OK, so that's it for this week, and I know everyone would like to say goodbye. And so, until our next edition... Goodbye! TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights, starting with Saturday, June 11th. And this week sees the second test match between England and New Zealand. You can either tune in to Radio 4 Longwave from 10.45 onwards or 5 Live Sports Extra, which is on DAB or digital radio from 10.15. And you can hear the match every day through to Tuesday, assuming the play lasts that long. Soul Music this week considers Jacques Brel's Neme Quipa, and its meaning and impact on a variety of people. That's at 10.30 on Radio 4. The drama at 3 o'clock on Radio 4 in the afternoon is the series The Price of Oil. The first episode looks at the oil crisis of 1951. Blind Date with Bloomsday at 4 o'clock on Radio 4 Extra has Peter White visiting Dublin for the Bloomsday celebrations. The opera on 3 at 6.30 is Stravinsky's The Rake's Progress. And 9 o'clock on Classic FM to round off your Saturday, the place to hear David Meller's Melodies, featuring the pick of recent releases. Sunday, June 12th, and a special event from the Barbican, drama and music intertwine at 7.30pm on Radio 3, when the novelist Sadie Smith reads from her essay, short stories and novels, interspersed with the music of Tchaikovsky, Bernstein and John Adams, amongst others, played by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. Two choices at 8 o'clock on Sunday in the evening, either more or less with Tim Harford on Radio 4 or a drama The Wireless Lady on Radio 4 Extra about the grand dame of radio drama, Winifred Leslie. And at 9 o'clock to round off the weekend, Radio 2, Brian Wilson at the BBC. The programme, of course, celebrates the Beach Boys singer-songwriter's 80th birthday. On to programmes then that are serialised right throughout the week at the same time, same radio station every day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Same time, same radio station. Book of the Week at 9.45 on Radio 4 all week is The Social Distance Between Us by Darren McGarvey. He discusses how people identify and relate to society's biggest issues. 
From 11 till 1, Monday to Wednesday, it's Naga Manchetti on Radio 5 Live with the latest news, interviews and listener experiences, while Adrian Charles takes over on Thursdays and Fridays. Composer of the Week at noon on Radio 3 all week is Vorjak. 1.45 on Radio 4, Emily Maitlis presents The People vs. J. Edgar Hoover. It's on Monday to Thursday and continued all next week as well. Rounding off each day at 8pm, the Classic FM concert with John Suchet, and this week it features performances by the pianist Lang Lang. While book at bedtime at 10.45 all week, same time, same radio station, 10.45pm, Radio 4, The Stranding by Kate Sawyer. This one's a surreal fantasy. On to the highlights then for the rest of the week, starting with Monday, June 13th, and 11.30am on Radio 4, Evan Davis has a new series of The Bottom Line. This episode's entitled The Crust of Living Crisis. Not a spelling mistake. Evan assesses the resilience of the UK's industrial baking sector. See what they did there. Another play in the Price of Oil series at 2.15 on Radio 4, with the episode on Monday looking for Billy, in which a detective and his mysterious client investigate protests against the Alaskan pipeline. After which you could test your little grey cells against the contestants in the Round Britain quiz. It's at 3 o'clock on Radio 4 on Monday. While some humour on Radio 4 Extra at 7, with Whatever Happened to the Likely Lads followed at 7.30 by... Tales from the Morsalem Club. And the Blues Show with Keris Matthews rounds off Monday at 9 o'clock on Radio 2. A new series for Tuesday, June 14th at 11.30 on Radio 4 in The Secrets of Storytelling. Novelist James Runsey searches for the best way to tell a story when chatting with fellow novelists. Price of Oil continues at 2.15 on Radio 4 with The Weapon, a thriller which dramatises 1975 siege of OPEX HQ when Carlos the Jackal took 96 hostages. Soul Music provides a contrast at 6.30 on Radio 4 Extra when the impact of meaning of Jerusalem by Blake and Parry are considered. A Jubilee concert coming from Aldborough has music by Bliss, Bax, Vaughan Williams and Howells, amongst others. That's at 7 o'clock on Radio 3. In Touch, as it's a Tuesday at 8.40pm on Radio 4. And a choice at 9 o'clock. Radio 2, The Jazz Show with Jamie Cullum. Or Adventures in the BBC Archives on Radio 4 Extra. To Wednesday, June 15th. And the 2.15 drama on Radio 4 is part two of The UN, a conspiracy thriller. Heresy at 6.30 on Radio 4 is the panel game which encourages the contestants to challenge established ideas. If you'd prefer comedy on Radio 4 Extra at 6.30, starting with How Tickled I Am, a profile of Arthur Askey, 7pm Hancock's Half Hour and 7.30pm No Commitments. To Radio 4 at 7.15, the guest on front row is opera tenor Freddie Di Tommaso, who will perform and talk about his new album. The Folk Show with Mark Radcliffe is at 9 o'clock on Radio 2 on Wednesday. Thursday, June 16th, In Our Time at 9am, has its subject as Dylan Thomas, 
and this discussion is led by Melvin Bragg. We can take a trip to Orkney for this week's Open Country. Composer Erlen Cooper is our guide at 3 o'clock on Radio 4. The Radio 3 concert at 7.30pm on Thursday includes Walton's Cello Concerto, Shostakovich's Ninth Symphony and a piece composed for the 1953 Coronation. Well, at 9 o'clock on Radio 2, it's The Country Show with Bob Harris. To Friday, June 17th, and the lunchtime concert on Radio 3 at 1 o'clock, with an eclectic mix of great music, ranging from Wagner to Gershwin. Dead Ringers returns to the Friday satirical look at the new slot at 6.30pm on Radio 4. Well, there's an hour of comedy on offer on Radio 4 Extra, as always, at 7pm with Dad's Army and 7.30pm Bristow. To Radio 4 at 7.15pm for the always interesting and entertaining Add to Playlist. This week, Keris Matthews and Geoffrey Boache are joined by Soweto Kinch to take the playlist from a classic TV theme to a pioneer on the battered upright piano. And for a whole evening of easy listening, maybe tune in to End Your Week on Radio 2 from 7pm with Tony Blackburn's Golden Hour, followed at 8 o'clock by Sounds of the 80s. That's it for this week. May I wish you a peaceful, safe and enjoyable one of radio listening. TNS Soundings. TNS Soundings. Features from across the UK. Hello to you all. This is John from Otley Talking News with my selection of audio-described television programmes for the week commencing Saturday the 11th of June and ending on Friday the 17th of June 2022. So let's start with Saturday the 11th. Steve Backshaw's Extreme Mountain Challenge is on BBC Two at 9am. Steve is climbing Venezuela's Tepuis, sheer sided mountains. Still with Natural History and still on BBC Two, there's The Wonder of Animals at 10am which examines how the brain of the great ape has evolved. It's the last part of Ainsley's Good Mood Food at 11.35am on ITV, with recipes inspired by the sea, a spicy crab salad and salmon fish fingers. This programme is repeated tomorrow at 11.55am. Holmes Under the Hammer is on BBC One at 12 noon. Bargain Hunt is from Malvern and follows at 1.15 on BBC One. At 4.35 there's a choice on ITV, there's Midsummer Murders in Murder by Magic, a pub landlady is crushed to death during a magic show. Or on Channel 4, Ugly House to Lovely House with George Clark. Along with the architect Carl Turner, they look at a radical £45,000 revamp of Darren and Hannah's bungalow in Heathfield, East Sussex. Staying on Channel 4, Kirsty and Phil's Love It or List It helps Carly and Eric to either improve their dysfunctionally laid-out bungalow in Lincoln, or should they move? Two choices at seven. On ICV, it's the final part of Romeo and Duet, with another batch of singletons looking for a romantic duet. Or on Channel 5, the Madame Blanc mysteries. When Jean's antique dealer husband dies, she finds he was living a double life, and the only asset she has is their cottage in the south of France. Casualties on BBC One at 8.40, with another busy shift at Holby's A&E department. 
Sunday the 12th of June. Holmes Under the Hammer is on BBC One at 11.30. And this is followed by Bargain Hunt from East Sussex at 12.15pm. You can Love Your Garden at 9.25 on ITV. The team are creating a contemporary outdoor space in Plymouth. Best of Britain by the Sea is on Channel 4 at 4.30pm. Ainsley Harriet and Grace Dent explore Norfolk and its gastronomic capital, Norwich. There's a repeat of Seven Worlds, One Planet on BBC One at 4.50, starting in Antarctica. Catchphrase for Soccer Aid is on ITV at 5 past 5. Brendan Cole, Simi Jaswal and Tim Lovejoy say what they see to win money for UNICEF. Over to BBC Two at 10 past 5 for Inside the Factory. Greg Wallace visits a Groomsbury factory which produces nearly 80,000 fish fingers each day. BBC Two at 8pm is the £15 billion railway inside the Elizabeth Line. A look at the construction of the new underground railway which crosses London and costs £15 billion to build. Our Falklands War, a frontline story, is on BBC Two at 9. Ten men who fought in this war recall their experiences and how they were changed by that experience. Also at 9, but on BBC One, the second part of The Outlaws. The gang realise they need to make money fast to get Dean off their backs. The late film on BBC One at 10.30 is Sully, Miracle on the Hudson, the true story of how Captain Sullenberger is forced to land his aeroplane on the Hudson River in New York following a bird strike which caused both of his engines to fail. Also at 10.30 is Grenfell, a drama investigating how and why the devastating fire of June the 17th ever happened. The second and concluding part of this is tomorrow at 11.05pm. Now a look at programmes that are on each weekday. And all the following are on BBC One. 11.15am, Homes Under the Hammer. 12.15, Bargain Hunt. 1.45, Doctors, but this isn't shown on Friday. 3pm, Escape to the Country. Now moving to ITV3, at 5.55 there's a rerun of Downton Abbey, starting on Monday the 13th with the very first episode. And all the soaps are audio described and are on at their usual times. Monday the 13th. BBC4 at 8pm has Hawaii, Earth's tropical islands. Discover how these islands were formed and the incredible variety of life that's there. Channel 4 has Bake Off the Professionals at 8 the pro chefs for their showpiece challenge have to transform the classic British trifle into a spectacular fine dining experience. Also at 8, but on ITV3, is a rerun of all four episodes of MacDonald and Dodds, the Bath-based detective series. Tonight is episode 1, and the others follow at the same time on ITV3 up to and including Thursday. There's a new series in the planning. BBC One at 8.30 has a new series of Extraordinary Portraits. The presenter, Tinny, teams everyday heroes with a portrait artist. Tonight the artist is Stuart Pearson Wright and the sitter is Harriet Middleton, who has raised a massive amount for her local hospital on Shetland. BBC One has another new series at 9. Sherwood is a six-part weekly drama based on real events. A murder is committed in a former miner village in Nottinghamshire. Initial inquiries lead back to the miners' strike of 1984. 
There's a new series of Long Lost Family on ITV at nine. Jacinta contacted the programme to attempt to find her brother Paul, but sadly she died while the team were investigating, so her daughter Claire is taking up her mum's quest. BBC Three has a rerun of Cuckoo. A Midlands couple discover their daughter has returned from her gap year with a husband. Parts 2, 3 and 4 follow tonight, and although I cannot find any details, I presume that the final two parts are on next week at this same time. On ITV at 10.45, How to Catch a Cat Killer. The extraordinary story of how a community joined forces with detectives to track down the man who became known as the Brighton Cat Killer. Tuesday the 14th. So let's start with some DIY. Well, watching DIY SOS, anyway. Peter started to build an extension to adapt his family home to their needs, but the pressure of looking after his wife and daughter, who both have a genetic disorder, has become too much. Nick Knowles and his team finished what Peter started. Also at eight, but on ITV, is Cooking with the Stars. The celebrities try to create the perfect Spanish dish. And Channel 5 has the Yorkshire Vet, also at 8. The vets attend to sheep struggling to give birth and a pug with a prolapsed eyeball. Sherwood continues from yesterday at 9 on BBC One. The Madness of King George, Lucy Worsley investigates at 9 on BBC Two. With the newly released documents from the Royal Archive, Lucy tries to understand the so-called Madness of King George. This is the last in Lucy's series. The Big Race to a Fortune continues on Channel 4 at 10. It's day 5 and the team realise that only one member that reaches the island is in for a shot of the £200,000 prize. Will this inject a burst of energy into their builds? There's another episode at the same time tomorrow. There's a new series of Miss Scarlet and the Duke, but it's on the Alibi channel, which is on Sky 109 and Virgin 126. Unfortunately, it's not on Freeview. Which is a shame because it's the Radio Times pick of the day. Miss Scarlett is a Victorian detective who inherited the agency from her father and is struggling to make a go of the business. In the previous series, she has irked the police in the course of her work, especially the quick-tempered but essentially decent William the Duke Wellington. Wednesday the 15th. Let's start with the evening with some food and Nadia's Time to Eat on BBC Two at 7. Nadia makes colourful milkshake funnel cakes. All the fun of fresh donuts with none of the fuss. Lots of choice at eight. On BBC One, the repair shop. And being repaired tonight, a battered kitchen table, a pair of giant clown shoes, a Victorian diorama of a horse racing scene, and a toy bear. On Channel 4, location, location, location. Kirsty and Phil are in Glasgow. The story of Welsh art continues on BBC Four at eight, with Hugh Stevens revealing how artists found radical new ways to depict Wales at the start of the 20th century. Finally at eight, over to Sky Arts for The Prince's Master Crafters, The Next Generation. Tonight it's the turn of the stonemason. Can the students carve an ivy leaf from stone? Moving on to more choice at nine... The Great British Sewing Bee continues on BBC One. In this, the quarter-final, sewers make sailor-inspired trousers with a complex bib front and tricky pockets. 
There's a new series on ITV at nine, The Savoy, a glimpse behind the scenes of London's Savoy Hotel, where rooms can cost £15,000 a night. Gordon Ramsay oversees the opening of his new restaurant. BBC4 continues Thatcher, a very British revolution at nine. Tonight, Mrs Thatcher gains a reputation of being uncaring as she refuses to support failing industries. Finally at nine, but on BBC2, DNA, family secrets. Five sisters in Lancashire have the same mother, but do they have the same father? And do identical twins, Diane and Louise, who lost their mother to cancer, have the potentially deadly BRCA genetic mutation? If you missed Conversation with Friends on BBC Three recently, it's been rerun on BBC Two tonight with episodes 1, 2 and 3 back-to-back from 10.40. Thursday the 16th. You can eat well for less on BBC One at 8. The team are in Trowbridge with Lucy Kay, Leon and their 8-year-old daughter Gabrielle, who has terrible palsy. Although they ensure Gabrielle has a balanced diet, it's a very different story with their own diet. Channel 4 at 8 has Sarah Beanie's Little House Big Plans. Julia and Matuno bought a house in Stoke Newington at well below the going rate, only to find structural decay and ravage the house. The only way to avoid financial ruin is to build a new floor. At 9 on Channel 4 is The Taskmaster. In this, the final episode, there's some excellent gaming of the rules by certain lateral thinkers. Who will win the Greg Davis Golden Head Trophy? On ITV at 9 is the Million Pound Pawn. A former care home worker hopes a luxury watch can change her fortunes, but pawnbroker Dan must establish if it's genuine. Finally at 9, Who Do You Think You Are on BBC One looks at the comedian, presenter and actor Matt Lucas. While in Amsterdam, he finds he has an extraordinary connection to Anne Frank. Finally is a Friday the 17th. BBC One at 7.30 has another of our live series with Supergran and the Garden of Justice. 93-year-old former nurse Dina works on a charity-run allotment where offenders work off their quarter-allocated hours. One 19-year-old is frequently late and sometimes doesn't turn up at all. Can Dina succeed in getting through to him? On Channel 4 at 8 is the final part of Devon and Cornwall. John in the Teen Valley tries to revive the lost tradition of making Devon stave baskets from ash. That's the tree, I presume. Again, lots of choice at nine. Sanderton is repeated on ITV, a period drama based on the unfinished novel by Jane Austen. Brian Cox, Seven Days on Mars. Brian fulfills a childhood dream of being invited behind the scenes of JPL's mission control for Mars 2022 and the team guiding the Perseverance rover across the red planet's surface. I mentioned earlier about the new Elizabeth line which crosses London. Well, at nine on the Yesterday Channel, that's Freeview 27, Tim Dunn and Sidney Holloway explore the new line in their series Secrets of the London Underground. There's a comedy film on E4, Freeview 13, at 9pm, The Inbetweeners Movie, based on the TV series. Will, Simon, Neil and Jay head to the Cretan Party Resort, Malia, where all the generic holiday fast boxes are ticked. Sounds like fun. That's all from me. I hope you find something of interest in my selection. TNF Soundings 